0: Welcome to the actual episode of Crackle Comics, because we just did X-Men Supplemental. And uh, that went over time, and I'm sure this will too. I'm Mike.
1: I'm Daniel.
2: And I'm Vincent. And I'm also going to talk about our retro book this week, which is Uncanny X-Men number 371. This is from August 1999, just before the turn of the century. Alan Davis was in charge of both the X-Men books at this point. He's plotting this. The script is by Terry Cavanaugh, who's kind of just like, one of those 90s Marvel guys who wrote some Spider-Man, wrote some X-Men stuff. No one could tell you a good story he wrote. He's the script here. And the art here, and it's noted as guest artist, he was not the ongoing artist, is Jim Chung. Uh, I think this cover is really great. It's a great Warlock cover by Adam Hubert. Um, even though it's not like fully relevant to what happens in the issue. As we get into the issue, the X-Men are on a scroll ship. Stranded in space. They're escaping from the last arc, which was some cosmic shenanigans with the scroll and also with time travel and crazy stuff. And Charles gives us some recapping on that, like literally multiple pages. And then everyone wakes up and is fine. Along that journey in the last arc, Marrow, who is like, a junior X-Men member at this point, has mutated a bit and is no longer emo as fuck. So her powers, if you're not familiar with Marrow, is that, like, bones grow out of her body randomly and she can, like, throw them and use them as weapons. And just her powers in general are emo, but, like, also, like, initially it, like, kind of caused her pain and also freaked her out and everything like that. She's a weird character and was kind of annoying, and I think she becomes less annoying basically in this issue, but she's still annoying. And she's basically the Jubilee of the late, late 90s. And we have a nice scene of Rogue working out as the X-Men are coming back to Earth. And they take a detour and stash the ship at Muir Island in uh, Scotland. And Charles is acting real pissy about the whole thing because the former Excalibur folks, which is Kitty, Nightcrawler, and Colossus, they want to hang like one day in the UK catch up with some friends, the recently married Captain Britain and Megan, and, you know, just chill out for a second, maybe drink some alcohol and stuff. But Charles gets pissy about it. And so he's like, all right, whatever, you guys can stay here for a bit, and we'll all go. And the, uh, these Excalibur folks are trying to find Doug Locke while they're here, who he was on the Excalibur team, that's when he became Doug Locke. And the end of the issue, we see a huge warlock like monster dude attacking some shield agents, which gets me to the B plot of some shield agents abducting Machine Man to dissect him, which is sort of relevant uh, because 2020 or yeah, Iron Man 2020, the event is going on right now. Machine Man's a part of that and they're dissecting him, and there's some talk of a new version of Deathlock. And then it wraps back around to them trying to get Douglock and the big warlock monster attacking them. I think it's very interesting to note that this issue has tons of footnotes, uh, in contrast to the current, the modern stuff that we read, and even in contrast to like even like the heyday of like the '80s and '70s, like in the Jim Shooter era when continuity was tight. Like I feel like there's way more footnotes here, and almost all of them are in reference to other X-Men stuff. It's not like they're you know saying oh Hulk was doing this, or or even oh Machine Man did this. And this is part one of the crossover arc Rage Against the Machine, which basically just ran through Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. And this arc launches the brief M-Tech re- imprint, which consisted of a new Deathlock book as teased, a Warlock book with him, his status quo slightly tweaked, and X-51, which is Machine Man's other name. I don't know why they didn't call the book Machine Man. All those three series, which were supposed to be ongoing and like kind of X-Men books, kind of not X-Men books, they lasted between 9 and 13 issues, and they all got canceled. And none of them are really notable either. So that's what happens here. Uh, what the hell did you guys think about this random late 90s X-Men issue?
0: I, I think I've said it on other shows, I hate this era of Marvel Comics. I hate the way they look. I hate the way they're inked. I hate the way they're lettered. It all looks the same to me. It's like this very early throw everything in a computer and digitize it, it looks like shit now. God, every book looks the same. In every book I've looked at from this era, whether it be Spider-Man, X-Men, Avengers, they all look the same. The only book that looks good is actually I said Avengers is Avengers under Per under Music in Perez. That's the only book that looked good. Because it looked like a Marvel comic book. This the like it it's it looks like a kid's comic that's adapted from a non existent animated tv show
2: well that's the weird part uh before dan's i saying it, is that yeah jim chung's art here it's like I, I wouldn't say anime inspired but it's like saturday morning cartoon inspired and it gets to a weird point where it's like why does charles xavier look like caillou like he looks like he could be like a
0: child it's disappointing to jim chung's art because when i look at jim chung's art on justice league or young avengers He's got that fantastic fine line work of detail that, with the way this was inked and colored back then, you don't get any detail. Everything is so flat. I mean, I
2: I, I agree with you on some of the coloring and, and everything like that. But I actually like Jim Chung's style here. It, it is just I'm just I'm definitely noting it. Um, and then also, I think I, I don't know what happens and when it happened, but I feel like Jim Chung kind of took on like a same face thing. Um, like people talk about John Romita kind of junior kind of doing the same face. And I feel like, but the thing is that like ultimately an artist's style is like when you boil it down, the style of an artist is like what they do that looks weird or that's bad essentially. And so I, I can nowadays instantly recognize a Jim Chung character by like their face, like some, just something weird about how he does the a, a character's face. well jim um, chung
0: characters traditionally will have a very kind of square jaw and square yeah. head on
2: and but that's not here um which is definitely interesting i i still like the art but it's not remotely well, yeah, recognizable I, to modern it's jim my,
0: my grapes are with the way it's inked and colored because yeah. it, any of the fancy line work that chung has on other books that we that we've read you don't get that here
1: yeah, you guys basically <laughs> said everything I was going to say about the art. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's like good, good um, pencil work. But yeah, I mean, at this time, Marvel was experimenting a lot with the digitized coloring and everything. So, I mean, I would, I, I would say the Kurt Busiek, Sean Chen stuff, Iron Man stuff is pretty good too. You know, it's probably around the same time period as well.
2: Well, a little biased, but I totally agree. I mean, I don't I mean, have... you
0: know, it's a little biased that has the digitized look as well Avengers doesn't
1: <laughs> yeah but I don't know I mean I think it's it's definitely not you as
0: get it, you get it you like Iron man you won't say anything
1: bad about iron no I'm just saying I don't think it's like I think just like the way the armor is rendered and stuff I think it works better for that type of book I don't know and on that note get into our first uh, new release here for this week so 2020 Force Works number Ones. I believe this is volume two, or I guess technically the second Force Works book to come out. I'm not sure if there's been a second volume of, of Force Works, but Vince can probably correct me if I'm wrong. But I think Force Works kind of came out of West Coast Avengers. Is, am I correct in saying that or no?
2: Yes, direct directly out of the end of it.
1: Okay, so this is kind of picking up back with it. War Machine's leading the team, so hence the kind of meshing together with the 2020 event that Vince alluded to earlier. So the robot revolution continues, guys. It's really great. So the issue opens to an island in South America. Well, not an island. um, I guess an area in South America where two soldiers are are vaporized by some mysterious force. We don't really get to see what, what goes on. And then we pan to a meeting of robots in like a city somewhere, probably New York. And they're planning to attack the Capitol when one of them is sniped through the window by Solo. And Solo, I guess, is a character. I'm not too familiar with him, but I know he's a Marvel character. Vince can probably go into more detail about him later. But And then we also get Gauntlet, who stops them from exiting the door. So, like, we kind of get, like, an opening action scene where we're introduced to all of the Force Works characters. Uh, War Machine shows up at the end, kind of ends the whole fight, but not until one of the robots actually automatically detonates himself. And I believe Solo is killed. I can't remember for the life of me if he is or not, but I think one of them dies. I'm not sure if it's Solo or Gauntlet. Maria Hill shows up later on and informs the team that one of their members have gone missing. And so Maria Hill shows up and informs Rhodey that a team member has gone missing and we're kind of guessing who that is. You know, we don't really know. We've only been shown a few people so far. And, you know, then we see Quake. So we're kind of getting introduced and setting up all these characters. And Quake and U.S. Agent are on a plane flying somewhere when they're actually blown up in the plane and they end up getting rescued. And they all end up landing on this island where they find Bobby Morse who is mockingbird obviously and she is the last group or she is the last group member of force works and we get a little bit of bickering back and forth between the two, uh between Bobby and War Machine in particular and their mission is to kind of stop a nuclear weapons facility on this island that they crashed on and this nuclear weapons facility is actually creating deflocks so it's kind of like tying in with the whole robot revolution thing And what I found interesting is the Deathlox, like, were attacking Force Works. And I'm not sure who said it. I think it was Rhodey. But one of them was like, don't worry, they're not human. And I'm like, they're cyborgs. So, technically, they might be part human. So, I thought that was funny that they were using lethal force on humans. But I thought this was a solid issue. Um, It's a good setup for this story. You know, kind of tying in with the rest of the Iron Man 2020 plot but i think it's good i I like the team members you know i like quake u.s agent bobby war machine so i think it should be a good book
2: i can confirm that solo is in fact a marvel character to answer your question but yeah for i mean also forceworks it evolved out of west coast the final issue of west coast was written by the forceworks creative team but also forceworks kind of reoriented and became more of an iron man book than an avengers book in my opinion at least because you also, like, a couple of, like, less than a year in, you had Force Works having a crossover with Iron Man and War Machine rather than a crossover with Avengers.
1: Yep. Hands um, of the mansion.
2: And obviously, Iron Man was on the team. And uh, Force Work, the original Force Works is a, is a strange thing. Because the initial artist, Tom Tenney, is, like, crazy 90s cool like very unique style and didn't get to do that much work. Also, the first issue has like a pop-up cover, which is very hard to figure out how to do if you don't know what you're doing, as we actually discovered uh, at a dollar bin sale one time. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's all I'm not gonna talk about. It. Actually, I will say one more thing, and I was expecting Dan to possibly touch on this, is that the first Force work series was written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Mm-hmm. And they don't really work together anymore. But Dan Abnett is like a totally currently working, you know, on major Marvel and DC books. He's not exclusive to DC. Like slightly strange that they wouldn't call back Dan Abnett to write this, which is probably only like three to four issues tying into this dumb event. And it's funny because they brought Abnett back to do, I think, the Nova tie-in one-shot to Annihilation Scourge. So... I mean, obviously, people actually like Abnet's Nova Run. <laughs> no one's like freaking out about Forest Works, but it's an <laughs> inter- it's an interesting choice. Who was was this? Christos Gage or something?
0: This was uh,
2: Rosenberg. Okay, that's right. All right, Amethyst Number One, another return of a long-forgotten property. This is written and drawn by Amy Reader, who she like co-wrote and drew I think it's called Moon Girl no not Moon Girl Moon I don't know she's done stuff in fact I think she may have co-written the beginning of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur but I don't think she's stuck with it she's got a cool style this is starring Amethyst aka Amy Winston who essentially has lives a dual life she has like she, you know she lives on earth she has parents they're actually adoptive parents her real parents are or whatever. She has a normal life, but she's also the princess of Gemworld, uh, specifically the Amethyst, like corner of Gemworld. And so she goes back and forth. And this issue, she goes back to Gemworld to celebrate her birthday and also catch up and everything like that. The realm of Amethyst, her realm is just totally fucked up when she gets there. All of her citizens are missing and her allies won't help her. So something's going on, except for one chick who has a giant caterpillar And I don't recall whether this new character, this chick, is actually fully introduced in this issue. If they name her, it glossed over my, it flew over my head. But I can say that her giant caterpillar mount is named Stan. And Opal, which is one of the other corners of Gemstone, is, or that's totally wrong. Opal is like her arch nemesis. He's the villain. He's up to some shit and he also teases that her parents might be alive. And that's basically this entire issue. She goes to Gem World, it's all screwed up, her friends won't help, she meets a new friend, there's a tease of the villain and a tease of, you know, nothing is the same. I think it's a good intro to the character. It also does a good pretty good job of catching up on kind of her origin and her very basic mythos, but it also feels very like especially once you get to the end, it's like, oh, it's over. It feels very fast and kind of anticlimactic. But I don't think it's you know bad in that way. And yeah, I'm gonna stick with it. This slightly ties into Young Justice, I guess, as will another book that we're gonna talk about, that I'm gonna talk about. But I'm not reading Young Justice and I don't care. And I will end this by highly recommending both the original run on Amethyst by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Ernie Colon, as well as also, and Mike may have may want to chime in and clarify some things, but there was a short period where DC was doing these like animated shorts on a few random characters and they were like 10 minute episodes or less. And like they did one for Green Arrow and Black Canary. And I don't remember the other ones, but one of them was Amethyst. And it technically, actually I think Amethyst did finish. The Adam one, which was adapting sort of the Adam just never finished, which is very frustrating. But most of those animated shorts are really, really good. And Amethyst was one of the good ones. And for this character who has a very spotty publication history, very minor character, highly recommend those anime shorts. And they're great for all ages. This is an all ages character um, by nature. A really cool, kind of one of DC's obscure characters. And Amy Reader has an interview in the back of this issue. And I think in the back of like almost every DC book uh, this week or this month or whatever. And she kind of goes into you know why this book interests her, and the unique the unique corner that the unique niche that Amethyst fills in the DCU. And the final thing I'll say is that it would be really great if this series could get us reprints. But we didn't get anything from Dial H. We didn't get anything with the resurgence of Super, of Connor Kent. Um, I mean, we we were already getting Young Justice stuff, and they're hopefully going to finish that. Um, so. I don't expect we'll get shit, but it would be cool. Um, I'm assuming neither of you have random thoughts on
0: amethyst. Does Young Justice show up in this issue?
2: No, I think there's like one footnote, like, "Hey, she's on Young Justice," but there's no real connection, and the characters are not—they're not even like in a panel, like just showing what she does otherwise.
0: Because the whole so person this is use of Young Justice for. Trap getting Superboy and Amethyst out of Gemworld.
2: Yeah, well, I, th- I think that is actually referenced. Like, this is her this is her next time going back to Gemworld, I guess, after that arc. But th- it, otherwise, it's totally standalone from Young Justice. And I'm also talking about Amazing Spider-Man. Obviously, this is Nick Spencer. This is Ivan Coelho. I'm not sure if this arc finishes here. This is part three. It may go into the next issue.
1: But, as I've said
2: with, as we have all said with pretty much every single issue of this arc. Ivan Coelho's art, totally fine. He's a great Spider-Man artist. He's not Ryan Artley or Patrick Gleason, but very few are. Chance, as the last issue ended, Chance has crashed into the podcast studio and he's causing a lot of background audio on the podcast. And of course, talking about this on a podcast, it's, it's kind of funny. And Chance throws the fight, I guess, because the dumb foreigner stuff and the floating casino Honestly, I don't 100% understand like that subplot of this book, and I don't care at all. I, I don't care about Foreigner, I don't care about Chance, and I don't care about the plot. And the a bunch of jack-o'-lanterns show up to uh, grab Chance, and Peter has a kind of a quippy narration, briefly diving into the continuity mess that is the jack-o'-lantern and how it ties in with Hoggoblin, etc., Also, in relation to Jack-o'-lantern and Pete's quip, see not this issue, which I'm also going to talk about shortly, but see the last issue of Ghost Rider and probably future issues. And the villains just fly off. And Spidey's like, I don't really know what they're doing. Like, they didn't really seem to be up to some shit. So, like, he just lets them go, gets back on the podcast. And there's a cool page where it's like, it's just one of those. I mean, it, it, they do this in movies, it's it's a common thing in comics, where you get a bunch of panels and it's it's a flashing through time and it's Pete and Jonah having different reactions to each other as they record their podcast. And then Pete goes away and there's a really great swinging scene by Ivan Coelho. And the end here, Nora Winters is at Peter's apartment and offers him a job. And she also finds a Spider-Man mask and makes a kind of funny joke about like, oh, you're kinky with MJ, but also like, god damn, all these characters around Peter are so stupid. And it turns out then the twist there is that Nora is working for the chameleon to some degree, but the podcast with Jonah and Spider-Man went viral and it is actually helping Spidey's reputation and everything like that. And Spidey's kind of coming around to Jonah's new status quo as this issue ends. And then the final subplot thing here is the stupid casino island thing. Pete's like friend in school, who he's working on the future tech device thing, he's up in the island and he's calling himself clairvoyant. And he's going to get rich. I don't know. I don't care. What do you guys, do you guys agree with my uh, takes on the various subplots, etc.?
0: Yeah, I, I liked Camelon coming back. We, we saw him go off to prison, but he's still going to be a factor around. I don't really like the whole clairvoyant thing. I kind of hope in that kind of is dealt with quickly or just not seen again. Though uh Nora Winters being back, I like I like that. The looks the cover of the next issue is Spidey and Boomerang again, so it looks like we're going to have more shenanigans with them, which I'll look forward to, but is standard is the standard on this book with Nick Spencer. He's going to deliver 9 times out of 10 pretty much is I think what our average has been throughout his run on this book and just yeah endlessly fun to read a spider-man book that is so good
1: i have a question actually is this the first time since McFarlane's run that spidey has run into chance or no
2: i can't say for certain but i don't think so
1: references that's been a long time what
0: so like it can't be
1: yeah i don't think it can either it's it's really
0: published by marvel It, it can
2: and for what it's worth i didn't recall to do so at the time i think dan did this covered most of this the last time we did this issue or this this series and he talked about chance and McFarlane. i don't think he said this but i want to clarify that mcfarland did not create chance chance appears in the first amazing spider-man issue that McFarlane does but chance was created by Michelini in his short run on web of spider-man mm. uh, before he right. got on amazing so that's that amazing spider-man the, you, do you guys agree that this whole casino thing? I mean, not just Clairvoyant, but like this casino thing. I don't give a
0: shit.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really dumb. I, foreigner.
0: I liked it with Foreigner getting the upper hand on Chance because the whole bet was to get one of Spider-Man's web shooters. I like that part, but like that's over, and I don't need to see it again.
1: Yep.
2: Yeah, Um and like, okay, he got the. I don't think getting the web shooter matters. I mean, Peter obviously has multiple web shooters, and. They're not going to be able to reverse no, engineer it. That,
0: that's yeah. the whole thing.
2: Yeah, it's just it's just like their bet and their gag. Because when you when you when you just said that just now, I'm like, I forgot for a second that that was the point of it in the first place because it, it wasn't right. really emphasized. And then somehow this foreigner stuff is going to wrap back around to Simcaria and Silver Sable at some point, which that stuff I actually find interesting, but this casino thing though no. all right that's amazing spider-man i did not read this one did i miss out
0: and uh, no, no no you didn't i i don't like being very harsh on a comic book but amazing spider-man daily bugle number two was dan can we say it was rough
1: uh it was rougher than rough
0: yeah four artists on this issue the first issue had three this is Mac Chatter, Francisco Mobili, who normally we like, I but it looked rushed here. Dono Sanchez, Almara, and Proto Bunker. And this is written by Matt Johnson. So this whole issue is picking up on all, like the three running plot threads we had and basically more or less wrapping them up slash like I know where we're headed with it. The Ben Yurick stuff, he finds out that uh, Wilson Fisk is behind the chemical thing. So I'm like, all right, well... Ben Urich versus the Kingpin. I've seen that a hundred times. That's not interesting. The Spider-Man is dealing with the contaminated water and then the web fluid thing with this kid named like Jay You to? I don't know who this kid is, but I immediately don't like him because he's going by You To, And he's like a, some super genius that makes like a squirt gun or something. I didn't understand what was going on with that. That felt like a total waste of time. The Chloe Robertson stuff, the most interesting plot thread in this book is her doing research on the contaminated webbing and mysterious deaths that are Spider-Man related and finding a story that Robbie had buried where Spider-Man may or may not be responsible for citizen arrest deaths. But Robbie quickly explains to Chloe, it was like, no, I buried the story because it's not true and we didn't have facts to publish it. And it would risk ourselves if we published that. So I'm like, Oh, you're, you're a big cliffhanger. You, you just spoiled. You got three more issues to go with here. And that, that's your big thing with it. And the, the other thing with that also is just like they're trying to do this thing remo- like in movies where you have a scene transition rapidly the next, but like they're cutting off scenes and just jumping to other ones where the pacing is all messed up. It, it, it's It's very not what you do with a comic book. At least let your scene play out and don't come back to it like seven, eight pages later. It's very odd how they paced and transitioned this to the point where I was like angry after I read it. But yeah, I, I'm dropping this two, two thumbs down. Sadly, Dan, you
1: have much more to add on this. Well, just two things with, with regards to pacing and with the art. Um, yeah, there was times where I actually thought the pages were out of order because there was like just a sudden shift to like a different scene. I'm like, wait, we didn't even finish up what was going on here. And that's really bad. I mean, it's you know, transitioning
0: mid, that's the bad thing
1: yeah like it's not like it it wasn't fluid at all and like the art i don't know about you but like there were some scenes where chloe looked like she was like a grown adult and then there's some where she looks like a little kid and i'm like i almost like it was almost like like hard to distinguish between like i was almost distinguishing them as two different people until i realized i'm like oh wait that's chloe the whole time
0: (laughs) but not only that i thought johnson's voice for spider-man is too jokey i think that writers that haven't written spider-man before they fall into the trap of giving him more jokey things to say than just be spider-man. And uh, that's a a T all over this. This was bad.
1: Yeah. His, <laughs> Moving his off, yeah, his appearance in this book was not strong at all. Like, yeah, Spider-Man showing up was like, was not a highlight for this book at all. So which just...
0: Parker off model as well. Like that yeah. didn't improve.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I didn't read this, but I have no idea what is up with this book because, like, it's a spinoff, it's a limited series. Why are there four artists? Why were there three in the first place? And they're not, like, divided up among different subplots, as far as I could tell in the first issue. I don't, you know, it's like some editor made this decision. It's not like the first issue was super, super, super late. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen too often. Very strange. Ant Man.
0: Well, it's it, it, the thing of. Like, all right, we're greenlighting all these Spider-Man books of ancillary characters. When's the shoe going to drop? Well, here it is.
1: <laughs> second issue.
0: Second <laughs> issue.
1: <laughs> all right, so let's talk about a second issue that is actually really good and it continues off the steam of the first issue. That is Ant-Man number two, written by Zeb Wells, art by Dylan Burnett. I always get the hard names, man. I swear to God. Anyway, we open to a recap of... Of issue number one told by none none other than pamela the ant which i thought was a pretty cool way to open the issue so ant-man and swarm is are, are facing off against the last three villains we had uh, vespa thread and tusk and basically they fight them by running running away from them because they're like "Whoa! Well, it's either we stay in here and die or we try to get out so Swarm and Ant-Man try to escape. We then go to Miami, Florida, where Cassie tells her mom that she has been offered a position with the West Coast Avengers, which is now headed up by Kate Bishop. And her mom is like, yeah, you're not going out to the West Coast. Your father's working out here. He's trying to support you. And Cassie's like, Scott lives in a freaking uh, anthill. So that's funny. Anyway, we go back to the beehive where Swarm kind of gives Ant-Man the breakdown on how those villains came to be and why he's here and all this stuff. So we get some backstory. Swarm was a Nazi scientist who screwed around with some bees and actually became a swarm of them through like a mutation or something. And a man by the name of like the master, very mysterious, kidnapped him and forced him to make these other villains. And when Swarm escaped, you know, with his technology that he used to make these villains, the Master is after, like, sent these guys after him to kind of get back the Ray to use to make more of these villains and these uh, creatures. So the story is kind of cut short, though, by the appearance of Macrothrax, which I guess is the Master. I think that's what they they said it was. And he is about to fight Ant-Man. When he finds out about Ant-Man's shrinking power. And that's kind of like his next thing to take a hold of. You know, he's not interested in Swarm's stuff anymore. He wants to go, you know, and get this pin particle, whatever he hears about. And the bees end up returning. Ant-Man is actually able to avoid Macrothrax by shrinking down. Like, while Macrothrax is about to hit him. So, Ant-Man's like, oh yay, the bees returned. But also, Macrothrax is going after the anthill that is storing all his pin particles in so it's a really cool ending to the issue you know we've kind of concluded this mini storyline and now we're moving towards you know this new villain going after the anthill that ant-man lives in and cassie might be involved she might be going over there to see how he's doing a lot of the things being mixed in this pot again i really like the the scale of this plot for ant-man i think it really works for this book and I think the art's on point as always. And uh, what'd you guys think of this issue?
0: I, I I love this. This the the balance of humor um to the regular plot is uh, great. It's very re- re- very refreshing, easy to read, very enjoyable. Uh, Tongue in cheek in the humor, like the the moment where Cassie says, "I got offered on the Avengers," and the pause where she just goes, "West Coast." I was like, I was laughing because the whole whole West Coast Avengers are like social media stars now. I was dying at that. But she does at least have like previous history of working with members in that team, which I did like. Yeah. Uh, that they weave that in, but yeah, I the, the the hijinks that Scott gets into tier two plus like Swarm keeps keeps calling Ant Man his friend. And he, just kept, he just kept like having to yell. He's like, "No, I'm not. I'm not friends with you. You're a Nazi." <laughs> so they kept making me laugh. Yeah, there's two issues in. I hope this gets picked up as an ongoing. This is this is some fun stuff.
2: Yeah um first thing i want to say is that the the technique of the ant recap that's something that i remember from robert kirkman's irredeemable ant-man starring eric O'Grady. i wanted to say that nick spencer did it but i don't think he actually did um, but that's an ant-man tradition and it's it's a classic i mean it it really makes sense for this character yeah all, all the humor is great i like how cassie has a ultraman poster in her room and the swarm in the swarm info dump was both like not ironic, but like there. You know, here's an info dump, but it's also funny and it also comprehensive, going into his origin. And uh, the the moment when his bee buddy explodes, that was like really shocking to me. And honestly, like I'm not gonna say like emotional, but like it's fucked up <laughs> because the the combination of just the concept and also just the the humor of ant-man makes it so that these ants or bees in this scenario which are one in a million which he communicates slash effectively controls all of them all you need to do is name give one a name ha- have and then a little bit of interaction and then the and then scott lang's humor and when one of these ants or bees dies, like it's fucked up. Like that's, that's what everyone jokes about in the, in the Ant-Man movies, but like th- it works for the character and it's, it's screwed up when his aunt dies. And then in the end, his aunt Chudley has been, has been uh, kidnapped by Macrothrax. Also, um, I mean, if it wasn't obvious, just to clarify for anyone who's, you know, not an Ant-Man fan, this is Macrothrax's introduction and first appearance. I think he, he and the concepts surrounding him are a great addition to the Ant-Man kind of mythos. He's uh, an interesting foe. I think he has a great design. And of course, as I said at the first issue, bringing Swarm into this series made a lot of sense. And then he connects naturally to Macrothrax's concept. And then the threatening, uh, when they get in a fight, the threatening line where Macrothrax is like, we eat you now. I'm like, it's kind of scary. <laughs> well,
0: just like the the best part about when the bee explodes is just like Scott's reaction. He's like, "Oh my god!" It's like, <laughs> it's like bee guts are all over him and soar.
2: Yeah, and then the uh, the teas for next issue basically just the cover is Spider Man and Black Cat are getting involved, which is not necessarily what I would expect, but obviously Spider Man is. It, spiders are not insects, but obviously there's a there's a bug connection there, and I guess Marvel is promoting Black Cat right now. And Zeb Wells, of course, has a lot of history with Spider-Man, so I'm down. Uh, it's a great book, and the, and Dylan Burnett's art is amazing, especially in the exploding bee scene, which is very <laughs> like as gore a gory bee death.
1: All right. Going from a good book to a shitty book, uh, we get into Avengers number 31. So I'll make this really short and quick. This book was forced on me because the title of it is called The Last Temptation of Tony Stark Iron Man. So whatever the hell that means. Uh, The status quo with Tony in this book is that he is basically on his own dicking around in a cave and he found a replica of his Iron Man helmet and he has been magically sent back through time. So he's, like, back in, like, a million years ago with all these Neanderthals, like, giving him shit and, like, fighting him and stuff. And we get a, the only thing I liked from this issue is an awesome splash page of, like, a Neanderthal-looking Iron Man fighting these, like... These dudes that are trying to attack him like at when he's in the vibranium mine. But anyway, he's he's looking for vibranium, trying to power a machine to go back through time. And throughout this whole process, he's being like tempted by these like visions of a snake. And then like this other thing, which is kind of like a devil that's like trying to tell him like who his real father is. And then about three quarters through the book, you know, we've been talking about changing artists throughout the throughout books today. About three quarters through the book, we just change artists to like this more photorealistic art. I don't know whose whose art it is, but and like Tony's back in modern day. He flies away and this guy who looks like Howard Stark is like plotting his downfall and he looks really creepy. He looks like a like like a more like corrupt or creepy looking version of like Walt Disney or something. I don't know. It's really weird. Yeah, this issue pretty much solidifies for me why I'm, I am not reading this Avengers run. It was very strange. And that is all I have to say about it. I'm so glad you guys gave me this issue to read. I, I, it was definitely not time wasted on my part.
2: See, the thing is, in the, previews, in the previews that I saw, it seems to imply that Tony Stark's parents are part of like this weird, satanic, maybe sexual cult. Yes, like that's kind of a big deal.
1: Yeah, but it's also stupid.
2: I mean, obviously, it is. I agree a hundred and ten percent.
0: But I want to interject here just a second. Where he said this book, this book was forced on him. No, it wasn't. We asked him if he wanted to cut it and if he was still reading it. This was purely his decision. Do not make it like we like stood over him with a sword and a shield, making him go. You got to read this. No, we didn't.
1: Don't let them. Don't but- let them-
2: but is is this an iron man key issue revealing that tony Stark's parents were part of a satanic sex
1: cult a it's kind be- of a it's yeah. Big retcon yeah it
0: to a near you
1: it's probably gonna get retcon in like another two months
0: no one's gonna reference this
1: no no way
0: Batman Superman number seven, Joshua Williamson and special guest artist Nick Darrington. So, the world's finest are visiting Striker's Island to investigate Kryptonite Man's body as part of their database to learn of potential threats. This is something they've been working on, I guess, since the attacks of the Batman Who Laughs. Superman is still shaken up from dealing with the Batman Who Laughs and trying to recover. While also Batman, beautiful Nick Darrington uh, pages of like Superman and Batman teaming up and taking out other villains. Oh, looks amazing. I wish. He was the artist on every issue of this book. But while visiting the grave, Superman feels that there's no kryptonite in the area, but the duo are quickly attacked by a masked man brandishing a synthetic kryptonite sword. Batman fights him, and it's revealed that it's Raz Al Ghul. So he informs the world's finest that the general Zod came to him wanting to use a Lazarus, but to revive the people of Kandor from Rogal Zar, and they agree to help Raz. But when they go to one of the pits, uh, Zod is already there, and he's thrown the city of Kandor into it, and the pit. And uh, it's revived the citizens of Kandor, and they're all flying and attacking Superman. Uh, obviously, Candor was destroyed in the Man of Steel miniseries under Brian Michael Bendis. So this is Joshua Williamson picking up a pl- plot thread from that. We haven't—I think the last time we saw Ra's al Ghul was when he we was in uh, Batman: The Outsiders, but we didn't finish the first arc of that. So interesting to seeing him here. Um, Joshua Williamson has a very good way of like balancing like. Silver agey concepts and make them fun. Like, there's a great moment where Batman's writing in Raz Al Ghul's jet plane, and outside you can see Superman like waving high to them through the window. But Batman's just like, Hey, Raz, if you try anything, I'm going to break every bone in your body. And Raz is just like, Yeah, wh- whatever you say. So, like, it, really great, just kind of balancing of like the weirdness of this. But I thought it was a really great joy. It is kind of a silver agey throwback, but this is exactly what I'd want out of a world's finest or a Batman Superman book. Not them fighting the Batman who laughs. But I'll open it to you guys. I, I love this. Nick Derrickson's art, always fantastic. Wish to see more work from him, always.
1: You know, for someone who doesn't really have a lot of backstory with these, with, like, this whole, like, like the, the whole plot line with this little miniaturized city, like, I actually was able to follow this pretty well. And, yeah, it was, it was a really good issue. I thought the art was pretty good. And, yeah, the ending is just an awesome cliffhanger. And I'm excited to see where this... Uh, plot goes
2: so the biggest thing for me is not really the biggest thing but we have one page there's a page where there's like cool flashbacks of superman and batman teaming up and stuff and again as is the case usually with these kinds of pages like i'd read a single issue of all those there's one where superman and batman are like transporting humongous gorillas and i'm like please tell me that story but one of these panels has magog the yeah main universe heroic version of Gog from Kingdom Come, but I guess Magog is a villain who's shown up in the New Fifty Two. I don't this, I, that that panel just made isn't
0: me- it? by Kingdom Come that he's also the son that Superman and Wonder Woman have. Also, like if, he, mm-hmm. if the if it's revealed at the end of Kingdom Come, I don't know, but maybe yeah, yeah. It's cool to see him. I like. I kind of geeked out when so I was like, "Oh, that's neat."
2: Yeah. Well, the panel put me on a Google a Google trip. Um, I also like. I don't know. There's some. There's some continuity here, even though it's stuff that I don't care about. Like, obviously, the destruction of Kandor is referenced, but also how Zod and Superman have a truce right now, and that's footnoted. Um, I think the interplay between Roz and, them is, and uh, Batman is really good. And um, yeah, I, I really like this. The, obviously the art is great, that was acknowledged. Um, and this does really feel like a world's finest story. And if this book was more like this, if this book sticks like this, then maybe I'll stick with it because this is issue seven. And as far as I know, the previous six issues were all, and it's acknowledged in this issue, those issues were all about the Batman who laughs the stupid infected plot line, which lines up with you're the villain. And then like the two of them have b- built an algorithm and a program to predict thought crime and surveil their friends in the justice league. And it's like all of that stuff related to the first arc is not remotely what I want to read about these two characters, but this was super fun. This feels like this could be, you know, in this in the seventies, or eighties. This could be a new Adam story, or kind of slightly past that era. So and we, uh, I'm happy to read it.
1: Could,
0: yeah, as far as art goes on this, so I think we had David Marquez at the beginning of this book. We've had, um, we've now had Nick Derrington. If if Doc Shaner does two issues, I'm like, yeah, I yeah. keep giving like like just prestige artists two issue books on this book, and it would be fantastic. But Detective Comics number 1020, which is Peter Tomasi, Brad Walker, Two Face is back. And we get a prologue showing that Harvey has survived the last time he tangled with Batman. That goes all the way back to the new 52 with Batman and Two Face, which was the Batman and Robin book that was renumbered after Damien had died. That was by Tomasi as well, but Patrick Gleason was the artist on that. So he just shot up um, kind of a black market deal that was dealing in like rare and expensive coins. So he's getting stitched up in urgent care. And um, we're cutting to Batman too. He's investigating the crime scene. And we get, like, five pages of Batman just, like, analyzing a crime scene and doing detective work. It's so awesome that he's doing that in detective comics because it never happens. He's, like, picking up blood samples. He's he's looking at kind of drill marks in the wall from the bullet holes, analyzing bullets. And that's how he figures out, all right, this is Two-Face who's here because I have his DNA. So we go to two-faced, and he's getting, like, stitched up in an urgent care, um, and the guy messes up one of them, trying to take the bullet out, so we just, some, so he's walking around with two bullets in his shoulders, and Batman knows that Harvey's, from the way the, the markings are in the walls, and the blood splatters, he knows that, alright, Harvey's out there, he's back, and he's got two bullet holes in him, so I better get after him before he strikes again, because I know he's going to. So he learns that, uh, there's, like, an, uh, on uh, a police siren goes out for urgent care. So Batman goes there and there like these, these two faced dressed up goons that are attacking the urgent care and trying to torture it and blow it up. Batman manages to actually save both of the goons and the doctors that are in there as the place explodes. And he's able to try to interrogate them a little bit before they press a button on themselves that gives them brain embolism, brain embolisms and kills them. And it's revealed that two face has started the church of two, as he's, like, indoctrinating these people into, um, like, a religion secret society kind of thing and putting the rare coins, like, embedded in their heads. So, this is kind of a new spin on Two-Face, and I like it. Like, this was pretty good. Brad Walker's art was fantastic. Just Just the panels of Batman doing detective work were engrossing and, like, really, really cool to look at. And then Tomasi, he's a Batman master at this point. As of right now, comparing this to Tynan's Batman, this is the this is the A book for me, while Batman's the B book. Um, open to you guys. I love this.
1: Yeah, I think the the funniest the funniest thing. You know, oh, shit. I can't even think of what I was gonna say. Go, Vince. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I had it all thought out, and I'm like, damn it, go. Um, this was good.
2: There's a reference to cross streets of Newton and Colon, which is awesome. Tomasi's been doing that very consistently. I don't really understand Two Face's motivations and what the hell he's up to. Obviously, this is the first part of the arc, and I don't think that Two Face ever really has a rational explanations for what he does. But there's really no clue in this issue, and I don't fully understand the situation with the bullet because in the beginning of the issue, for a second, I and it, it the art's slightly unclear, and. The storytelling for a, for a while, I was like, okay, does he have a bullet near his brain? In he his does. Brain? Okay, yeah, he
0: does. he shot himself in the head.
2: Okay, okay, um, and I guess obviously this is Two Face's entire gimmick. He's always like this, but I guess the Two Face version, the Two Face half, is like, you know, don't fuck with that bullet because somehow it's like, me, like maybe the Two Face half has like more dominance due to this uh, injury because. The doctor tries to get that that one out, but like he's also getting out other bullets, and then the two-faced version clearly shoots him when Harvey is like, "Yes, please take this bullet out." So, you know, as usual, there's some complexity and there's something going on within Harvey's head, Um, and now they're tying it in with that bullet. I wasn't—I don't think I like this as much as you guys, but Detective is far more interesting to me than Batman, especially since. I don't know if I said it when we last covered an issue, but I'm pretty sure I dropped Batman because... You had not
0: dropped it on the show. You've basically okay. more or less told us with the next week's solicits that you're off.
2: Yeah, well, Tinian apparently is writing like a... F- when did he get on with 86?
0: He got on in 86.
2: So he's writing a 15-issue Joker arc, and it's like, I don't care. But well, you got
0: on those appearances a punchline.
2: Yeah, and then this punchline thing. I, I mean, I don't, I don't fully fault Tinian for, I don't creating, it, it, creating a new character, but but that that buzz around that book, kind of dampens my interest. You know, yeah. the opposite for a lot of people. Whereas Tomasi over here, like he'll occasionally do a two issue arc, a three issue arc, random villains. Like even though I actually didn't read each issue of the arc, and um, you guys didn't like it, like that weird like chris like santa claus villain like it's at least cool that he's telling those stories yeah. and not just here's joker here's two face even though he's also doing that um and you also get a mix of
0: artists and different well, uh, first big villain that he's used like he had the arkham knight stuff he had stuff with uh the mythology which was all a computer program but he had like Etrigan showed up in that he had the specter show up, like he's like reaching down deep. Like this is very much to me, like embroiled in like mid to late seventies Batman stories, where like kind of anyone can show up, but he's doing detective work. He might be globe trotting. I love it.
2: The unfortunate thing is that I hope, I, tragically, I hope that Riddler does not show up, based on Riddler's current status quo. So right. don't use Riddler, but. If you want to bring in Riddler and fix him, please do that.
0: You want to know who I want to see Brad Walker draw? I want to see Brad Walker draw Killer Croc.
2: Yeah, I mean, most of these artists draw, like Doug Mankey, Killer Croc would also be really fucking badass. Even though I I think Doug Mankey might be fully uh, gone from this series, I think he has something else going on. But yeah, this is a good book. Uh, Dan, I know you actually liked it.
1: Yeah. The two things I I was gonna say was those little things that um, Two Face was putting into like people's like having people eat. They kind of remind me of like the wafers you eat at like church, like the body of Christ. Or, like the yeah, what? That's what he's doing. Oh, okay. Well, then it's spot on. And like I agree with you with the whole the whole stuff with like the investigation. That's probably like, my bet. That's probably my favorite part of this whole book. The best part is when he puts like the blood into the database and he's like, tell me what I already know. And I'm like, damn, okay. But yeah, that's all I got.
0: All right, Vince, talk about what should be the Eisner winner for DC.
2: Battle H for Hero number 12. The final issue, Miguel and Summer were trapped in like limbo thingy, but there's always hope. And this connects back to a uh, previous issue or maybe the one before where we had flashbacks from Summer with her dad. And so they become characters from like early, early animation and cartooning and then they start to evolve. But at, at first they're basically like a Popeye character and then a character from George Harriman's Crazy Cat strip. And uh, of course I, I do want to note because some people might not know this that Popeye is of course originally a cartoon strip before he was a cartoon. Drawn by EC Seeger. And then they continue to evolve. Um, Miguel becomes like Robin, like a preppy Robin for a second. Uh, She becomes Brenda Starr and then Mary Jane. And Mr. Thunderbolt gets turned back into Silver Age Robbie Reed. And this whole time, the coloring is just absolutely, by Jacob Gibson, is just absolutely astonishing. Um, As they, as always, with each issue of the series as they flip between the different characters and styles. Obviously, Quinonez is killing it, too. And um, Miguel is suddenly a Peter Parker. Then he's a character from Elfquest. Then there's some Duck Comics reference. There's a Doomsday, which I think we already saw, but here's a different version of Doomsday. And then the one that I actually had to think the hardest about is, I believe, uh, Summer turns into Scarlet from G.I. Joe. But I, but for a second, I was I had to Google some Google image search. I wasn't sure if it was Scarlet or if it was April O'Neil because those are two franchises that I'm not super familiar with. But I think she's Scarlet. Um, and then there's a Love and Rockets reference, and then they end up dialing CMYK. Of course, that's cyan, magenta, yellow, and key. Key is black. Those are the four colors that comic book printing traditionally works on. And really just printers to this day. And just, again, just wild stuff with the color and the art here. And then Robbie Reed gets trapped back into his own Silver Age comics. And there's a very meta moment there. Um, And then the duo dial H, instead of for hero, for hope. And they kind of fly by. They see Superman's origin. They see him getting blasted off. And... Potentially they had like an impact on that, which is co- like Starman also kind of did that. Um, it's not super obtrusive here or, or like, like, you know, they don't wreck Superman's origin in this issue. And then they kind of fly through a collage of hopeful moments throughout DC, but also from everyday life and multiverse stuff. Like there's a go, there's a yo-yo kick you go, go kick. I don't remember, um, panel. And then there's like people like overcoming, uh, loss or disability, I mean, injury, not disability. Um, and then you have Dick Grayson's vow of justice in the Batcave. It's iconic thing, which I feel like we, I want to see that more in Batman comics. Um, and Barry's sacrifice in crisis. The Legion essentially playing a game of pulling straws on who's going to sacrifice their life to resurrect Lightning Lad. Diana going to Man's World. And then a kind of snapshot of the losers, the uh, World War II squad and then it just kind of ends and they set up life in metropolis and are interns at the at the daily planet and superman flies ahead as their heroic personas walk next to them metaphorically um honestly this issue didn't blow me away as far as the art and storytelling as some of the previous issues but i think it did a great job wrapping it up And obviously, like, literally every time one of these, like, style references pops on the page, I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. And there were some great ones here. And then the the CMYK thing was really neat, as well as the Hope uh, segment. And, uh, yeah, this is a 10 out of 10, like every other issue in this series. I think last issue I was, like, blown away. Um, And this didn't reach that level, but it wraps it up. And overall, I will still stick with my claim that this is the best thing that I've read from DC. And one of the best things I've read in comics, you know, while we've been on this show, within this decade, it's just great comics. Like, this is a DC classic.
0: If you need a single book to distill what DC characters should be at the core, it's this book with the hope. I love that. The, The comics cartoon history that you see throughout the book is just endlessly amazing the double page spread by the way where you see all the hopeful moments from dc universe quinones is doing adam hughes over that it looks amazing like it, it almost looks like it could be adam hughes like that's how good he is at emulating all these styles i do want to point out that yes i'm number one proud of you that you realized that was scarlet from gi joe i did not think you would get that one number two the the scene with Superman, and this made me geek out super hard was that so and i don't want to see if you noticed this the designs he had for lara and Jor-El were the were was a mixture design of the 1970 superman movie with the glowing but then also uh marrying it with the design that he that bruce tim had given them in the superman the series cartoon so it was both designs coming together which those are my two favorite versions of those so that made me like endlessly like lose it over that. Cause that was awesome. And number one. Yeah. I think from an artistic standpoint, issue 11, much more impressive, but from a story standpoint, I think it stuck the landing. It was going to be really hard to stick the landing. And they did in a very satisfying way. I don't like at the end of this, I don't want to see these characters fade away. Like I want 20 more issues, 50 more issues of this. Like, oh, let's see where they go next. Let's see them actually team up with Superman because we didn't really get that here yet. So, like, and now they're kind of going to be relegated to background characters in Young Justice or, like, whenever Bendis needs a Justice League scene in Superman. That's the uh, that's kind of the sad reality that I think we're going to get. But I will say, if you're reading this, um, Summer keeps referencing David Bowie. Throw on heroes by the end of this and it all works.
2: Yeah, and again, this is the same as Amethyst. I'm not reading young Justice. I'm not interested in doing so. So I don't know that I'll ever see these characters again anytime soon. And by the time, you know, by the time they would, five years down the line, it's gonna be a new take on dial H. But that gets me to the point that, like, yes, they wrap up the narrative here where they essentially have their their character evolution and their relationship comes to a fruition, and they you know learn their lessons. And also they resolve things with Robbie Reed and Mr. Thunderbolt and everything like that. But they resolve things with Robbie. But the thing with Dial H is that every time there's like a new take on Dial H, there's essentially a new operator or the new user of the dial. And okay, they finished with Robbie Reed and they had all these Silver Age and history comics things. But there's the 80s version um, with, I think it's Vicky and Chris or something. There's the 2000s version and then which like dealt with kind of like addiction, which was touched on here. And then there's like the new 52 version, which was kind of like a wacky head trip thing. And so if they wanted a second season, there are places that they could dive into that could, you know, continue this vibe and dig get more into these characters, but also provide an entirely different perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would love to get
0: more. As a last kind of wrap up on this, I saw Humphreys do a interview this week talking about how Summer became a much bigger factor character as the book as her role grew and talked about the getting the six more issues, like they kind of freaked out for a little bit. I forget what outlet that was, but if you can find that interview, read it because it's really interesting how him and Canonas had to like go down and break down and look like, okay, we're getting six more issues. Um, because originally it was this was six issues and it was done. So they had six more to do, and like the fact that this came last second for them to get the to to get the reorder for six more, and then it stuck it, and was this good on that level for twelve issues is just simply amazing. I think it was newsarama. I think it was newsarama as well. Um, but that's dialing for heroes. Sad to see that one go.
1: All right. So after all that talk, I definitely need to look into getting that when it comes out in trade or whatever but moving on here we have falcon and winter soldier number one so gee guys i wonder what sparked the creation of this book anyways we open to bucky kind of doing some yoga in a innocent middle aged house when he is ambushed by these like swat looking people he ends up killing all of them pretty brutally and escaping with his pet cat in tow which I think kind of injects a little bit of humor into this otherwise pretty serious book. We then go to New York where Falcon and Red Wing are soaring the skies and are listening to like voicemails about this these terrorist camps that are sprouting out up and this like company working out of this federal utilities office that is basically being tasked to take down these terrorist cells so falcon kind of goes there to investigate and when he gets to the office he actually runs into bucky where he finds out that bucky is actually working for this company as one of their agents to take down these terrorist cells and he alludes to kind of like a deal that he has with shield after his days working with hydra this is kind of like the government's deal to him to you know not incarcerate him for 25 years so Falcon tries to track down one of his members from his veteran support group which has gone missing and uh, Bucky also tries to go find out what's going on because when they get into this office all the agents are pretty much dead so somebody put the hit and found out about this group that was going after these terrorists and Bucky and Sam end up you know tracking down one of the agents, uh, Veronica Eden, and they kind of work with her to track down, you know, any other agents that might still be alive and might have any clue as to what's going on here. And they're in Veronica's house when all of a sudden this dude shows up and his name's called Natural and he just shows he just starts beating the shit out of like Bucky and Falcon and like all the t- all the while, like joking about like how he killed all the agents and how he enjoyed it and and how, how much of a fan he is of, like, Bucky and Falcon as well. And he basically tells them after he kicks their asses, he's like, yeah, if you get in my way or you try to, you know, go down this, this trail again trying to find out what's happening, I will kill you. So goodbye. I really like this issue. Uh, it seems like it's a good premise for, you know, Bucky and uh, Sam to be working on. And uh, I'm definitely going to be looking at the second issue. So, what do you guys think?
0: This gets an issue more for me before I completely drop it. Derek Landy, Federico Vincentini here, by the way. But I like—I've seen the trope of like the little kid that can beat you up because it was just done in the last Winter Soldier miniseries under Kyle Higgins. And that kid was also corrupted by Hydra as well. Like this isn't like we just saw this. So I did like the fact that Derek Landy was at least like remembered that Bucky has a cat now from that miniseries that, that uh, was like, I think it was like a year and a half ago now. So that was neat. But like, I nothing like was lovely here. I don't know why they're playing up like this aspect that Bucky and Sam like don't work well together because they did. they, did the whole time in brubaker's captain america run they were partners in that run and mm-hmm. like sam helped bucky out a lot so like seeing up like like setting up that they don't work well together at this point just like it doesn't make sense to me like they were still working together pretty much off and on even when uh Remender was had the helm with the captain america stuff and then later on when spencer had it like they weren't like not not working together ever. Like they didn't like have a rift or anything. So that's like, that's more of like an MCU thing being played up because they have like an edge to each other there. But like, I felt like even by the end of Endgame, they're pretty, they're pretty even with each other. But whatever. I guess you get drama wherever you can get it. But
1: yeah, wasn't wowed by
0: anything here. I thought Enrico Ventini's part though was good.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree.
0: Fantastic Four Grim Noir. This is Jerry Duggan, and Ron Garney. And it's a Noir thing yarn. So that was pretty cool. Also, I right off the bat, I'm gonna say Ron Gurney's art is absolutely beautiful here. Loved the art here. So the thing is having nightmares about his life with his newly married wife, Alicia Masters. I don't know if we can say newly married at this point. I think we're coming up on like a year since the marriage. So but so all of his nightmares are ending with like things going downhill for him and Alicia dying, but and he's been having these nightmares for weeks and he can't sleep. So Alicia discovers um, that their neighbor Rosemary isn't singing recently. They can like kind of hear from like the other apartment over and the thing goes, all right, I'll investigate this. And he heads to her apartment where he meets two like kind of detectives going. So she's now here. We don't know what happened to her, but there's no signs of forced entry. It would have had to come from already inside. We have her bag, but there's no belongings on her. And that's weird. The thing has, goes to sleep that night he's, he's kind of on the trail of it. And, he has another nightmare of like this demon creature who's captured Rosemary. Um, and he like wakes up uh, with Alicia and he's like, Hey, sculpt this. Um, Cause she can sculpt from like just his descriptions, which is really, really cool. And like, so he's got this clay head that it, like, and then it busts into Reed and Sue's room. He's like, you recognize this guy? And Reed's like, I, it is four in the morning. I don't know what is going on. So Ben then goes on the trail to the Sanctum Sanctorum where he runs into Wong and the, the tip-off here is Wong even says, I don't come around here much recently because I believe Wong is trapped in Las Vegas. Um, that's from the Damination uh, event. But uh, it's very quickly that Wong turns into the demon known as Despair, which is like spelled like D-E-S-P-A-I-R. There's like a Y and E in there. But this despair feeds on the despair of others. And since the thing has a lot of it, he made him a vessel for it, um, which then he captured Rosemary. Um, So like the rest of this book is pretty much the thing with Ron Garney art um, and beautiful shadows and color work just punching and beating up this demon. And he gets Rosemary back and in classic thing faction, everything's fine. They're having a cookout with everyone. But then like a piece of the rock falls off the thing into his beard. He's like, oh, come on. So I thought this is pretty good. I would like to see like more stories like this with the thing. Like maybe let's bring Marvel 2 and 1 back and we can do things with that. I know recently we had the Marvel two-in-one series with Zdarsky that was thing and uh, Human Torch, but maybe that there's an outlet for these kind of stories because I I enjoyed this.
2: I feel like the title is slightly misleading. Um, based on the title and the cover, not really reading the soli- actual solicit, I was going in expecting okay, here's a raw, ro- uh, here's a noir story with Ron Garnier art. And we get that for about the first like five pages, and there's some really cool sequences in that, in those that chunk where there's a thing goes out at night in the rain, and he's wearing his trench coat and hat, and uh, everything like that. But otherwise, it's it's a despair story. Who is a very wacky villain. He's a fear lord. He explains his whole deal in this issue. So if you've never heard of him, and what threw me for a second, and then I used the internet and confirmed, is that Despair has never once interacted with Ben Grimm, obviously, and the Fantastic Four as a whole, which seems odd to me. But he, in the grand scheme of things, he's not a frequently used villain. He's most closely related to Doctor Strange, which is obviously set up here, and also Cloak and Dagger. In fact, their origin is tied to Despair, um, sort of. But yeah, I thought this was good. The characterization of Ben is really great. Um, all the trippy dream sequences as well as the psychological trips from despair are portrayed very well by Ron Garney. Garney's art in general is very great. I like the way Ben's relationship with Alicia is portrayed. Um, this is a great one. I wouldn't call it like quote unquote, this is not like important. Um, it doesn't need to be though. It's it's a it's a one shot. but on that same note, will the new character Rosemary appear some more? Because she's kind of this issue elevates her as you know random background character to named neighbor of the Fantastic Four. So if Dan Slot was clever, you know he'd have her singing in the background like every ten issues. But it was it's a great it was a great issue. Um, and as a one shot, I would recommend people pick it up. Now, Ghost Rider, somewhat relevant. Um, Ghost Rider is a character that you might expect Despair to actually tangle with, but not really, because Despair wouldn't really be able to do much. This is one of the Juan Frigari issues, not Aaron Cooter or not whoever else they pull in. And this is Hearts, the start of Hearts of Darkness Part, well, not Part 2, Hearts of Darkness 2. Hearts of Darkness was a prestige one-shot in the 90s, which crossed over Danny Ketch, Ghost Rider, Punisher and Wolverine at the height of their 90s edgy boy popularity, uh, written by the main ghostwriter guy Howard Mackie and drawn amazingly by John Romita Jr. And this is a sequel to that, even though that book already had a sequel. And Wolverine and Punisher are investigating some ghostwriter wreckage, and it's Johnny's wreckage, uh, but they don't fully know that yet. And he he, Johnny, is chatting with Mephisto. He kind of has him tied up. And he's drinking. And then Danny is drinking in Cypress Hill Cemetery as usual. So both of our main characters here just drink heavily in this issue, in this book. And obviously Danny owns a bar. So I guess the alcoholic representation uh, is stellar here. And um, for alcoholics, you should be reading Ghost Rider and not Iron Man because Iron Man is currently some AI slash his alternate future brother. I I bet there's not much alcohol there. Um, And Danny jumps on the bike and immediately wrecks. And for a second, you think like, oh, he just totally fucked up because he's drunk and just crashed immediately. But it's not the drink. His tire was shot out by Punisher. And his fellow edge boys show up for a misunderstanding fight. As Danny turns into uh, the spirit of corruption, they're like, what the hell? And meanwhile, subplots, Lilith is hanging out with the orb, classic Ghost Rider villain, and Blackheart rolls up on Danny's bar. Um, And so the Blackheart part is what's going to actually be Hearts of Darkness related, besides the trio of characters. And then the final tease, so maybe Hearts of Darkness is kind of looser. Um, In fact, it might only be this issue, I don't know. Doctor Strange finally shows up to check on Johnny because, of course, Johnny freed Mephisto from Strange's prison in Vegas following Damnation. Um, it it's the same as every time. It's a good issue, Ghost Rider. I'm enjoying it a bit.
0: It's like it's fine and middling. I feel like the same thing when I say about New Mutants can be say about this book, but. I will say Ed Brisson does something in every issue that makes me go, "All right, I'm sticking with it." And Black yeah. Blackheart showing up was that thing for me. It's like a
2: it's like a good high B tier or something maybe your mileage may vary.
0: tier. Yeah.
2: And and he's really leaning a- into it. He's really leaning Wa- into
0: for Gary's art. One for Gary's art. Uh he's missing the X on Wolverine's belt. So that was bad.
2: Yeah, but but I think the characterization for Wolverine and Punisher was pretty decent, and Krakoa and all that stuff, the status quo is acknowledged, at least.
0: Yeah, it was nice to see that. Moving right on.
2: Now, the return of Ice Cream Man. Number 18, I decided to try another issue this series, and I can now say that I'm sticking with this series. Uh, each issue, as I described last time, to my knowledge, I've only read two, It's basically all anthology. And sometimes you'll have the titular ice cream man kind of as like a a strange supernatural figure in the background or playing an active role. But he's not in this issue at all, as far as I can tell. A man is suffering from late stage Alzheimer's or some kind of similar memory or degeneration. And he's struggling to recall his memories. And in his mind, he imagines his memories being stolen By a little naked gremlin so he'll be thinking about playing baseball you know as a as a young child and this gremlin with his with his dick flopping around will run up and like touch the like first baseman and the first baseman zaps out of time and uh there we go through his childhood memories uh falling in love with his wife then his alcoholism and his wife and kids leaving him and in the present his kids are visiting him in the hospital his son is kind of following in his father's footsteps and getting divorced himself while his daughter has used uh in vitro or whatever to decide to get pregnant and raise a child by herself so both of his children are kind of in crisis too as they're and unsure about their futures as they're dealing with their with their dad's uh you know, slipping away both, you know, in terms of his memories, but also just his health. Like he's he's that far along in, in the disease. And eventually all his memories just slip and the gremlin takes him too. And I'm just I, I feel like describing it doesn't really give it justice because I'm talking about a little gremlin with his dick flopping around. Um but this is a really brutal issue. Like this is an emotional shit. This and especially I want to give the major shout out for this issue is the lettering by, I guess this guy's name or code name is Good Old Neon, or maybe that's a lettering studio, I don't know. But he or they carry a lot of this issue. And this kind of story and the way they do it could only really fully work in a comic because they the narration boxes, like the spacing of the letters, the spacing of the words, and there's also things like strike throughs and missing words and like blanks. Like it'll be like brackets. Like, like you can't think of one of his, friend, one of his childhood friend's names. So it'll be like bracket insert name because his memory is slipping. And you can really only do that. I mean, you could attempt it in a novel in prose, but you really can only fully do that and flow it along with the art in the comic book medium. And so this issue really impressed me on that level and also just the emotional level um and i mean i've had family members who've dealt with alzheimer's and things like that and this issue i mean just really nailed it as far as what they were going to achieve and a, a very emotional yarn while also having that kind of not science fiction this isn't a science fiction story but that twilight zone kind of twist uh, which is the premise of the whole series and last issue was like an all-star superman tribute and ultimately ended up being a, a mind fuck as well And so I'm definitely sticking with it, even though this is issue 18. I've only read two. The format of this book works with that. Um, And I'll definitely pick up collections to catch up eventually.
0: All right. Well, maybe I will have to also go back and check this out later as well. But our final book of the week, Punisher Soviet, number four, Garth Ennis, Jason Burroughs, back after a delay. This was delayed for a little bit, but now it's back. Frank and Valerie are launching an assault on the Special Forces team up in the Catskills, assigned with protecting Pranchenko's wife, Zenaida Serbrovia. Z- 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 so, strong Russian name there, as well. They So they have the captured in a safe house after they just blow up, like, all these cartels of of guys. It just begins with Frank and Valor just launching uh, grenades to them off, out of their M6Qs. It's just beautiful art from Jason Burroughs of just horrible, horrible violence. But, um, so they, they have her captured up in the safe house and they begin questioning her about what separates himself from this other guy's wives because she's outlasted his four other wives by over three years. They all – he's had five wives, and the average life expectancy, say, with uh, with him is like a year and a half. So she's made it five years. So she tells them her life story, revealing that she was once a model who, and she, like, keeps wanting wanted to cling to that lavish lifestyle. So she keeps, like, reinventing herself to go after these rich men and cling to them. Um, and so she met up with Pronchenko, and basically she was like like, I kept myself interesting just enough to keep myself around, but also like she's like very subtly trying to transform his criminal empire around by making his businesses more legitimate. So like when he's asleep, she's like the one trying to make business deals and stuff. And she's like very strange and like calm through all of this. Um, even saying it was like, you guys are in control, you guys are in control. So Frank and Valerie kind of like look at that and go, like, something's definitely up here. And Frank realizes that. Oh, there. There must be a tracker on her that we didn't check. So there, and then she like reveals that. Oh no, he put it in my thigh. So they already re- They already see like two attack helicopters coming. Um, and Frank's able to take one of them out, but they're they're headed to the Catskills at this point, and up in the woods with just the guns they have because Frank already used the missile launcher. So it's them in the woods, and the wife is going to have to also join them because she reveals that she doesn't like Prunchenko either and wants out since, because she knows that while they're going after her, her, she's not a priority target. Like they'll kill her just to say that just so she doesn't talk. So she has to kind of team up with Frank and Valerie here to uh, save herself. So that's our cliffhanger with a bunch of guys coming in the woods and they just have the ammo that's with them at this point. So very kind of a very classic Punisher Max cliffhanger, but you know, Garth Ennis is a modern master and we've, we've said this before. And he can do this for the rest of his career by just giving us good six, five issue, six issue Punisher miniseries. And this is completely there. And Jason Burroughs, just a fine Punisher artist as well.
2: Yeah, I don't have much to add. Um, And precisely because the main point I'm going to make is that this issue in this series really does show that Ennis has just mastered the form, like he knows how to write a comic book, specifically a comic book. Like ultimately like my notes for this issue, which obviously I wasn't doing the synopsis, so it's slightly different, but I have like four bullet points because kind of nothing happens in this issue, but not remotely in a way that like makes it feel like nothing happens. Um, So many comics nowadays, you have these six issue arcs and like kind of sort of nothing happens, but kind of sort of a lot happens but it's dragged out and it's just paced and that's that's the nature of comics today. Garth Ennis can tell a connected ongoing story but it, this it doesn't feel remotely decompressed or anything like that. And he's not overly wordy. He knows exactly when to use narration and you know his dialogue is perfect across these characters. Um it, it I mean he just knows exactly what he's doing. And this not this wasn't like blowing me away this week. It wasn't like the most exciting thing. And and honestly, a Punisher comic is is it's rarely gonna do that. Um, you know, coming from a superhero fan perspective. But it's just a 10 out of 10. Like these guys know exactly
0: what they're doing. Yeah. And exactly that, like you, you kind of hit the nail. Like, I have read I read all of uh NS's Punisher Max run. I have to eventually try to go back and track down uh, the Marvel Knights run because I want to read that. But like I, I've read these stories. I've read Fury as well. Like, I know exactly what's going to happen. But I'm still engrossed and on the edge of my seat the entire time because Ennis is just that good.
2: <laughs> and uh, that's a great way to end the show as we collect ourselves after this long show and the uh, pick of the weeks. That's what we do next. And mine is going to Ice
1: Cream Man.
0: Okay. I felt like after your, after your rundown of that, it, it couldn't not be. Mine is Dial H for Hero number 12.
1: And mine is uh, Detective Comics 1020.
2: Dial H definitely uh, a runner up for me, um, as it always is when it's not Pick of the Week, but last chance, and it didn't get it this week. Alright, thanks for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, go check out the other 45 minutes we did.
0: Yeah. Go check out the X-Men supplemental. Both of them will be audio version at some point throughout the weekend. Follow us on the Twitter and Instagram. Go vote on the retro poll. You know the drill at this point. Have a good night. Peace.